So here is our guiding premise for our time together today. When you consider something, a thing, especially an important thing, without the main thing, you basically have nothing. Without the main thing, you basically have nothing. So often what we do is we consider something and we take for granted the most foundational or fundamental element of the thing. When, when you don't have the main thing, you basically have nothing. Three examples to prove my point. Basketball. Right now is the NBA playoffs. Um, kind of a happy time of year for me. I, I love that they actually play defense. It's wonderful. Um, so we're going to have the game, right? Got some big game sevens coming up. Uh, if you have the star players, Steph Curry's getting warming, warmed up. You got fans headed into state-of-the-art arenas. You got regulation-sized hoops. You got refs, cameras, announcers, mascots, uh, celebrities, well-dressed courtside. All the hype that money can buy. You have all of that, but you don't have a basketball. The whole thing is pointless. The game can't be played without the main thing. You basically have nothing. That's basketball. What about sandwiches? Or as my kids used to call them when they were little, sandwiches. Okay? Sandwiches. Let's say you are tasked with the responsibility of making 60 sandwiches for the whole second grade. There's a field trip going downtown Lansing to the Impression 5 Museum. And you want to make some PB&Js. You've got different uh, stripes and types of jelly jam. You've got crunchy and smooth peanut butter. You even have an alternative that is nut-free for the allergy kid, right? You're, you're all ready to go. You've got napkins. You've got Ziplocs. Um, but if you don't have any bread, you can't have you some sandwiches, right? You don't have what will hold everything else together. You just have a big mess, Kids are going to ruin their clothes, their hands are going to get sticky, they're going to touch everything, and then Impression 5 won't invite you back, because without the main thing, you basically have nothing. Example number three, uh, a vehicle. Imagine out in front of your driveway, your house, your yard, wherever you reside, you've got this big, fancy SUV. It's brand new. It's the latest model. You've got three uh, rows. Each part of the cabin has its own climate control. It looks handsome, smells of new leather, uh, lavish interior. But if you don't have an engine, the car doesn't go anywhere. Because without the main thing, you basically have nothing. So when we consider something, we can't take for granted its most fundamental, essential element. Welcome. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm a pastor here at RIV. Great to have you in the third installment of our series in the book of Colossians called If Then. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul in Colossians is writing a Greek church about 30 years or so after the resurrection. Uh, the gospel had been starting to spread across various pockets of the Mediterranean world. A lot of people would probably see this as a new sect or a new, that's S-E-C-T, uh, of Judaism. This is a new branch, a, a different type of believer and so this, this apostle is communicating with this young church. He wants to see this church be formed and mature, but not just in a vacuum. He wants them to be formed and to mature in a climate that would maybe have a reductive view of what mattered most, or dare I say, who mattered most. Last week, 
We, we, we saw Paul praying that his audience would grow, that they would grow in their, their knowledge of God, that they would have spiritual power, that they would be holy. And specifically, he, he wanted an increased knowledge of God that would lead uh, towards a, a gratitude towards God. Okay, so by grace alone, he explained to his audience that because they converted, that God had given them an inheritance, his own inheritance, rescuing them from the domain of darkness, transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. So he desperately wants them to grow in knowledge and in gratitude, but not just general information, not just vague, grateful vibes, but he wanted that knowledge and that gratitude to take on a particular shape. He wanted their knowledge and their gratitude to be Christ-shaped. That in everything that they knew, their wisdom, their learning, their insight, particularly about God, that that would be Christ-shaped. That their gratitude, that, that, that their thanks, that, that their, their love, that their appreciation and their appreciation of God would be Christ-shaped. Later in the book, we'll see how he's going to say that their lives, their very lives, should be Christ-shaped as well. So we're going to dive into a passage today that might be one of the most, if not the most, Christ-shaped passages in all of Scripture. Uh, Different translations will give us different headings to kind of organize the sections. Uh, Some will say something like the incomparable Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of the Son of God. And so what we need to jump into that is a vocabulary word, Christology, christ Christology. Christology. What is Christology? Well, Christology means the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Study him. Perhaps the most important uh, bedrock, framing bedrock of theology. Theology without Christology is at best lacking and is commonly or at worst something that we can use but still veer into heresy. Because not everything that is spiritual is trustworthy. Not everything that is religious is biblical. And so the passage starts out saying this of Jesus, Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So we have a contrast here. Okay, so you've got Adam, the first man. Adam merely resembled God. He is, he is an image bearer. That's a great place to be, but you're kind of a reflection. You're kind of like a totem pole, right? That you're going to reflect the king. He partially represented God. You've got Adam and Eve, right? This is Genesis 1, 27. They are made in the image of God. But Jesus is being contrasted here as the second Adam, the better Adam, the better person who perfectly showed perfectly demonstrated the exact likeness and total perfection of divinity, of the divine. So two things from this verse. Number one, he's the visible representation of the invisible God. And secondly, he is preeminent. He is superior. He is first. He's the main thing. Some read this firstborn and they emphasize the part of being born and they conflate, they confuse, they twist and they're like, oh, so Jesus was just created. Like a firstborn child is cre- very cute baby walking around the night walk, being carried back there, was, was born. I wouldn't say that baby has existed from eternity past. Okay, some people, they jump there. That's not where this is going. To emphasize the, the bornness, 
That's not where we're going. This was like the, the old-timey Arian heresy or the, the heresy that the Jehovah Witness belief is built upon. But when we hear firstborn, we wouldn't hear it the way that they, the original recipients and audience, would hear firstborn. It's not about being born in a chronological order. Rather, this is a way of poetically talking about a truth about Jesus, that he has the highest rank. He's got the highest status. In the ancient world, firstborns got all the inheritance. They got the land, they got the wealth, they got the responsibility for the family. And so the hearers would hear the poetic truth that Paul is getting at with Jesus, the uncreated one. Jesus, not created, linked up and divine. Let's get some other evidence here, shall we? Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14. Philip comes up to Jesus on behalf of the fellows. And he's like, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father. And that would, be, that would be enough. We just need to see the Father. And Jesus claps back and he says, the one who has seen the Father has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus talked in a way that suggests and explicitly says that he didn't think he was a created being, that he was divine. I mean, we could re- revisit all those I am statements. Sometimes we've talked about them. I've, I've talked about them from time to time where Jesus says, I am, and that's not just starting a sentence. He's not, like, not saying like, I am hungry. That's like a title. I am the bread of life. I am. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, like this is thousands of years before, behold, I am. He takes on the memorial name of God. Jesus also uh, forgives sins. He doesn't say, like, I forgive you when you've hurt my feelings. He says, I forgive your sins. Think about it right now. If I was like, you've got sin. You guys sin against each other all the time. You send me emails. I know all about it, right? Okay? And what if I was to say, I forgive your sins. Like, how pants on fire crazy would that make me? Who does that but God? His, his opponents, who actually agreed with him on, on, on one claim that Jesus thought he was God, they actually were in agreement. It's just Jesus is like, no, you should worship and follow me. And they're like, ah, we would rather pick up rocks to stone you to death. Okay? When they make this charge against Jesus, they say, we want to we stone him. What gives? Why? Well, according to the religious law, you could do that if someone makes this blasphemous claim on the charge of blasphemy because you being a man claim to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. So this is out there. This idea that Jesus is God. Point one, that he is the perfect representation of God. And secondly, as such, he takes priority over everything. Well, why? Let's say a little bit more about that. Well, he's the creator. Verses 16 and 17. For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Everything created by him, through him, and for him. The the Greek is speaking to the universe of things. So like the cosmos, like Saturn, okay? The cosmos for Jesus, like uh, an ant mound for Jesus, right? Uh, All this spiritual stuff, even the demonic stuff, Jesus sits over top of that. Markets, okay? Lesson plans, briefcases, 
What I'm doing right now, when I trip over my word, Jesus is Lord over all of that. Anything you can name, anything you can think of, Paul is saying, yeah, Jesus is the main thing over that. If there's anything out there, he is the Lord over that. And so the, the prologue of John's gospel, there's kind of that famous, when John is talking about Jesus, he calls Jesus the word. And he's like, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God in the, in the beginning, and he was God. There was nothing made that was not made through him. Everything was created through him. Apart from him, there was nothing that was made that was made. Everything was created through Jesus. So he's the creator. He's the purpose of all things. I heard someone point out this week in, in my prep that uh, we can't, this is not the insight. <laughs> we can't know everything about everything. That's not like shocking, riveting. Remain seated. You don't know everything. That's not what I'm saying. But while we have limitations in our knowledge, if we know Jesus, it becomes possible for us to know something about anything. If we know Jesus, if we know the creator, we can know something about everything because his traces, his fingerprints are everywhere. Now go with me for a second on this one. Uh, sometimes we hear stories of cultures that are, that are either pre-Christian or non, very non-Christian where people are very in tune with nature, right? They live off the land and these cultures, these Societies find themselves so readily accepting the gospel. When they finally hear it, something clicks in a profound way. Why is this? Well, Jesus is the creator. Psalm 19 says that the heavens testify, that the trees, that the clouds, they all speak something. And so people that are watching nature and they're, they're, they're in touch with creation, they might see like the seasons, You've got the fall, there's a death, and then you're dead in the winter, and then you've got the spring, you've got new life. That there's something in the fabric of all of that that when we hear about Jesus, when we finally get the gospel, it can click. All the lights come on the dashboard. Where am I going with all of this? He's the creator. He's first, he is supreme. He's the glue that holds everything together. It all points to him, by him, through him, and for him. This also would then include the church. He's the main thing in the church as well. The creator of the world is also the head of the church. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus is the head of his own body, the church. You take the head off a body, right? We're not doing well. You take Jesus out of church, it's not a church. It's a bunch of people, right? That's all it is. Jesus is the founder. He is the CEO. He is the brain. He's the central nervous system. And the English word that we have here to say that Jesus is the beginning probably does not do justice to the Greek because the Greek word here is archai. Archai. Archai is where we get like architecture, the architecture, everything else would hang on, that he's the first principle, he's the source, the initiator, that he is priority in time and rank, but it's even more than that. Um, nerds, listen to this. Okay, Archai is this technical term that's been used in philosophy over the ages. It can frame in an entire field of study. So going back to Aristotle and moving forward, people have talked about the different Archais. You need an Archai, you need a reference point, the originating source, a cause, a principle for knowledge, a building block, the needed architecture that everything else would hang on to go further. You need the Archai. Paul's saying he is the Archai. Basically, without having the archai, um, the NBA doesn't have a point without a ball. 
okay? Can't make you a sandwich without that bread. Without the engine, vehicle goes nowhere. If you don't have the main thing, all you have is a pointless mess that's not going anywhere. And the claim here isn't just that he is the first in the original creation as the creator, but it's also that he is the first in the new creation, in the recreation. He is first from among the dead. Talking about resurrection, that he is first in the line of people that will leave cemeteries. This is what we celebrated with Easter a few weeks back. Jesus began to roll back the curses of Genesis 3. Victory over sin, Satan, and death. And T. Wright points out that God, in Jesus, God was not really just trying to sum up the old creation but he was trying to inaugurate a new creation as well. In Jesus, through Jesus, he made all the people. Then he died for all the people, and he's going to save all the people who repent and believe, and then he is first in the resurrection of the new creation, of the new redeemed people. Verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all, how much? All his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased to fully reside in the embodied person of Jesus. The word dwell here means to uh, be at home permanently in a particular place. So, more vocab, okay? And this will be like the last tricky one. Um, <clears throat> hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. A union that is hypostatic. What in the world is that? Well, it's important. And this seeks to answer the question, how could Jesus be fully God and fully man? Like, no, no, we're not diluting this. We're not watering it down. Like, how can he be 100% and 100% at the same time? Like, our brains, how does that? Well, the hypostatic union is why? That there's no mixture, there's no compromise that he is one united person forever, John 10, 30. Here's another way that Jesus was wanting uh, to, to court the, the scorn of the Pharisees. I and the Father are one. The man, Jesus, says, I and the Father are one. If you have seen the Father, you have seen me. Like, like again, if... If I stand up here, I'm like, if, uh, if you've seen me, <laughs> you've seen God. You should be laughing right now. You should be like reaching for a rock right now. If, I, if I'm, I'm not serious, I'm not serious, okay? So just commence with the violence. Um, no, this means the God part of the equation has always been there. Something was not added to his being divinely, right? He was truly born. We celebrate the incarnation on, on Christmas, right? That, that's when God, in his infinite godness, he stepped into humanity. God then put on a bod, and then that is Jesus. God in a bod. So the divinity is baked into who he is, the very constitution of his eternal reality. So this is the importance of the hypostatic union. It means he has two inseparable natures. Why does this matter? Well, Jesus had to be a man. He had to be a man, to be our great high priest. A high priest is supposed to be a man. Empathetic, sympathetic. He can understand what we're going through. He suffered. He went through all of that. But not only that, he's then our sacrifice. He died for human sin as a human in our place. But he also had to be God, right? 
so that his death would be adequate, so that he could live perfect. Hebrews 2 says as much. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people, to make atonement, to cover over our sins, to take our sins away. The God-man who died for sinners, he is the main thing. And the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. I, I, I entitled this talk, The Main Thing is to Make the Main Thing the Main Thing. And then our communications department told me that that's uh, too long. Like there's like a, there's a, I have a limit. And I know it's hard to believe, but I, I had too many words to say. That's really difficult. Remain seated. Um, but so, yeah, if you're following along, it might say the main thing. But the real title of this sermon is the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing, regardless of what they try to tell you. Anyways. The people in Colossae, people in the U.S., the people back then, people now, we need to make the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing, right? But we often sleep on the main thing. We want to domesticate the main thing. We want to make it a subordinate thing. We want to reduce Jesus. And there's a lot of different versions of Jesus out there. Jesus is that serve us, that serve subordinate purposes that are really not main. Those are versions of Jesus that we actually create in our image, right? We got we to kind of put the shoe on the other foot. So I want to ask you, which version of Jesus do you encounter? There's a lot out there. Just look at three. There's a lot of false views. First, and this is the kind of point that I make that sent, gets me uh, sent emails in my inbox. So how about the partisan Jesus? Yeah, I'm going there. The partisan Jesus, it's not an election year quite yet. So whatever. Get me fired later. The partisan Jesus wants to campaign for, wants to reinforce your specific platform or party. There can be a lot of different distortions. And not one part of the aisle or the political spectrum has uh, the monopoly on this. You can have like the nationalistic Jesus, right? Where he's blonde and America is better and European conquest of the continent and manifest destiny and everybody, that doesn't matter. This nation. What that is, is idolatry from the pit of hell. Quote me. That's not Jesus, but we have that vision. We also have like the dominionistic Jesus where we want dominion over society, rule and reign. We want power. We want conquest. Then we have also a response to that. We also have like the social justice warrior Jesus, which is a joke for its own reasons. That Jesus probably has purple hair and is very offended and has um, a lot of signs that don't really influence anybody. Anyways, partisan Jesus seeks to co-opt him like the zealots wanted to in the first century to overthrow Rome, to get domination, to get their vision to come to pass. But what this does is this deforms the eternally unchanging great spiritual Messiah and tries to reshape him into a tame, malleable, political Messiah that will do my bidding, that will do our bidding. This overlooks scripture. When Jesus is before Pilate and Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't kidding. His kingdom is already here, but not yet. But that's not what we're seeing right now. And so the thing is, Jesus will not be a mascot. He will not be co-opted for lesser causes. That's not who he is. 
Our self-interest cannot make him fit into the boxes we concoct for him. So we need to resist that vision of Jesus because it's out of touch with scripture and reality and it exhausts us and it exhausts people. And it does not jive with the supreme one who presides over the universe. What about the self-help Jesus? Just keep on rocking that boat, all right? The self-help, the self-help Jesus, a guru, an additive, a personal guide, a coach for my goals and my accomplishments and my fragile, fragile self-esteem. This is the Jesus I invite to be a passenger on my journey, and I say things like, God is my co-pilot. I mean, I am in the driver's seat, and he can be right there as, as just my cheerleader, help me believe great things about myself. But there's also a problem with the self-help Jesus, because this isn't the authoritative Lord that we see in Scripture, The authoritative Lord that gets to define right and wrong, that looks somebody in the eye and says, go and sin no more. That's not self-help. That's actually kneecapping yourself. That's the Jesus who warns us about hell. That's the Jesus who talks to wind and waves and says, be still. (laughs) The self-help Jesus is kind of like owning a little kitten and putting it on your lap and just petting it so you feel better. Oh, you're calming me down. Oh, this is so tranquil. That's not the lion of Judah who will return and everyone will fall before him. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That is the last Jesus that I want you to consider and encounter. That's uh, what I'm calling this is the Jesus Jesus. Like the actual Jesus. This is the major Jesus um, the, the one that can't be co-opted, the one we can't create, the one that created us, the Jesus that calls the shots, that isn't bound to my time and my place and my interest groups. He isn't bound to my ego. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't like follow the script that my narcissism requires from him. This is the Jesus, Jesus, the, 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 the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The world was made by him, through him, and for him. So the, the thrones and, and, the, and the politics that come and go, that doesn't really matter to this Jesus because he's boss of that. Your to-do list, how, how, how good you look, what goes on a tombstone or on a, on a resume, that's not this Jesus, He's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. This is the Christological Jesus, the one in whom divinity, the fullness of divinity, was pleased to dwell. Only this Jesus can save us from our sins, can save our soul, can resurrect our body. C.S. Lewis had a very clear way of framing Jesus as either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And I'm going to read a very long quote that's worth it. And I would actually rather read the whole chapter, but we've got places to be. This is from Mere Christianity. Clive Staples Lewis says this. It's a great name, by the way. I am trying to prevent here anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, and I love this description, on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Mic drop, Clive. The Jesus Jesus takes away all the other options and says, take me on my terms. And if we take Jesus on his terms, then we get everything. He speaks into how we think about morality and ethics and how we think about being a citizen. He actually does give us a new and different kind of esteem that comes from God, not from what we do or not what people think or say about us. He reorients us from the inside out. If we take Jesus on his terms, we get everything. But if we don't take him on his terms, we get nothing. Because the main thing is to make the main thing the the main thing. If, If we were the Baptist church I grew up in, I would then make you turn to one another and look at each other and say, can you tell your neighbor that the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing? I'm not gonna do that. But maybe I should. Maybe I'll put that in in mind for the next time. But the point is, the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. How do we respond to this? Because you notice the passage I just read actually has no commands. None. It doesn't tell us what to do. It is so about Jesus that it doesn't even mention what I do in response. (laughs) Man, I'm more insignificant than I first thought. How do we respond to this? How do we relate to this Jesus, the Jesus, Jesus? I'm going to do something I typically don't do. The passage that we just walked through, before we try to answer that question, I'm just going to read it again. Then we're going to answer the question. Who is this Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him And for him, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." If that is who Jesus is, how do you and I need to relate to him? Think about him, respond to him, live in light of him. Can I be casual with this guy? Can I be indifferent with this guy? Can I just be like, eh? Like, people feel that way about like Coldplay. Like, yeah, I can see how you like it. Chris Martin, he's got a good vocal range. But other people, eh, not my jam. This isn't Coldplay. <laughs> this is Jesus. This is the one who's like, um, I got this idea. Music. Yeah, I'll just make music. What do you do with this guy? Third chapter of John's gospel. We see this occasion where John the Baptist, who had been having this this successful ministry. People in the Holy Land are coming out to John. He's preaching a a message of repentance. People are coming to him in droves. And then Jesus shows up. 
The guy that John says, I am not even worthy to tie his sandals. And somebody approaches John and they're like, hey, John, like, how are you doing with this? All your people are leaving and they're going to Jesus. They're leaving you, they're going to Jesus. It's like they think he's like the main thing. What, how do you do? John could have had fear, oh, I'm insignificant, or rejection or competitiveness of like, I gotta, I gotta talk louder or I gotta crack more jokes or I gotta like provide food and like I, I gotta do something. But when he saw people leaving him and going to Jesus, he was filled with joy because he knew the main thing was the main thing to make the main thing. This is what he said. Like, what do you make of this? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. What do we make of him? A lot. Everything. I've got a lot of words and I probably don't have adequate words to say what we need to make of him, but I know that, that he must increase and I must decrease. How are we supposed to live, think, relate? What do we do with Jesus? Well, he must increase. I must decrease. Sometimes, and I do this too, we look at church or we look at the faith. And we're like, you know, I don't feel fed, which I feel like that's a whole sermon. Like, uh, anyways, I don't feel fed spiritually. Ooh, that's usually so loaded. But typically, we're like, you need to say more about my money about a singles ministry, about dating. You should focus more on parenting or budgeting or you should focus on this or quit talking about that or whatever. The the thing is Jesus. And if you get Jesus, then we can flow into everything else, right? You ever like filled up an ice tray and if you just keep pouring into the one corner, like it just overflows and it fills the whole tray. If we get Jesus That's our foundation for everything else, for our money, our time, our sexuality. And sometimes when we we put those things as most important, we make those things the main thing, we're like, you're not speaking into the fill in the pet issue enough. But if we're talking Jesus, Jesus puts everything down on a lower shelf. He is the top of the mountain. Everything else is meltwater that should flow down into the other stuff. It's common, it's easy, and it's natural for us to look at Jesus as a little value add, something to tag on the rest of my life individually or even collectively as an endorsement for our shared interest. But that stuff makes me the main thing. That stuff makes our ideologies that are time-bound and bound by our blindness and our gaps in education and life experience, that makes them the most important and Jesus functionally subordinate, even if we like him. But that's where it's sneaky. I like Jesus. Like, I like the second Coldplay album. That's awesome. I I will probably never listen to that ever again. Okay? Just vague vibes if it's on at a wedding. I'm like, yeah. Where'd it go, Chris Martin? All of those approaches. And the even I like Jesus misses. We all miss. Dare I say we try to play the game without the ball. It loses its point. We try to build a sandwich without the bread. We have a mess of disordered stuff. We're sitting in an engineless car. Even maybe sitting there with a lot of other people, but it's not going anywhere. And that puts us on the other side of a very, very holy God. Because we're supposed to make the main thing the main thing. But we haven't. To a man, to a woman, to a society, to a culture, to a church, to this church... We have failed miserably. But here's the thing about the main thing. 
is he is full of grace. He is full of grace. He came and died for insignificant and cosmic, cosmically sinful people like myself. People with disordered values and, and, and skewed priorities, he died for us. And, and if you put your faith in him, in the Jesus Jesus, in the divine Jesus, the, the, the perfect work in his life Jesus, the I died for you on the cross Jesus, if you give that Jesus your allegiance, you acknowledge him as the main thing, he forgives your sins. He gives you eternal life. His spirit comes and lives inside of you. He promises to resurrect you, to fill your presence with himself, even when you don't feel it, that he can reframe everything so that our lives could have significance. When we go into everything else, we could have purpose, a purpose we could never, ever attain without him. That's the Jesus. How are you going to respond to him? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I think about how the name of God was so revered among the ancient Jews and even nowadays that even speaking the name of God is something that doesn't happen or it doesn't even happen lightly. Like how Matthew writes a gospel to a bunch of Jewish people and he doesn't call it the kingdom of God, he just says the kingdom of heaven because your name is so big and so revered that you are surrounded by angels right now and the angels can't even look at you. The seraphim, they cover their eyes and they scream, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. How when you speak, your word is thunder. But yet you came as a baby you made yourself accessible so that when we think about who God is, we know he has a name. And his name is Jesus. And he's meek and he is gentle and we can approach him. And a bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. And you invite us with our baggage and our issues to come and to be washed, to eat and to have our full Thank you, Jesus. I pray that we would come and know you, see you, worship you, enjoy you, and Lord, that you would fill us with your fullness in your great name that I wish I could find great enough words to speak about. Amen.